0: Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you are. For he knew he was going to betray, or for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to the place, his place. nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him now that you know these things you will be blessed if you do them i'm not referring to all of you i know those who i have chosen but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture he who shared my bread has turned against me i am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to who, as to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning, aback, leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread, when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Simon entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival, or to give something to the poor, as soon as Jesus or sorry, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. This is the Lord <laughs> This is the word of our Lord.: Thank you.:
1: It's my privilege to invite Tony up now. Uh, Tony's going to be opening the word for us this morning. Um, I'll grab a microphone Tony. Grab this one? Yeah, fantastic. Tony, I don't think many of our people will know who you are, so I thought I would just ask you a quick question, and I'm not going to put you on the spot too much. Um, but what do, you, what do you do with yourself, Tony? What, you, or what have you done in your life?
2: I'm delightfully retired now, <laughs> uh, in September last year, but I've been uh, a Presbyterian minister all my life ordained at 25, and an Anglican for the la- Anglican priest also, uh, concurrently, uh, for the last five years, I guess. And I was also a Church of Scotland minister, whilst I served in the British Army as a chaplain for 16 years. So.
1: Fantastic. I'm sure you've got plenty of stories then. Um, is it right if I pray for you, and then yes. we'll let you open the word for us. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for Tony and his ministry over the years. Uh, Lord, we pray that this morning, as he opens the word for us, that you would speak through him straight to our hearts, and we would have ears to listen to your voice. Thank you for this faithful servant, and we pray for your spirit to enable and empower him. In your name. Amen. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Carlos. Well,
2: thank you very much for your warm welcome, and especially Stu, a brother in Christ, who is rightfully has been declared today a wonderful man of God. I didn't hear your sermon today um, on the radio, but it will be outstanding, no doubt. So thank you, Stu. It's uh, wonderful to be here today. You know, one of the joys of being uh, having a busy life is actually going around to a friend's place or having a friend around and then sharing a supper together or perhaps even something more formal, a dinner party. And, uh, you know, it's just so much fun, isn't it? Uh, you, know, you bring the meat, and you can bring the vegetables, and someone can bring the dessert, and you have so much fun. Now, I, I have been asked to preach on uh, John's Gospel, Chapter 13, today. And the more I have thought about it, you know, uh, I have realized that this actually was a very, very odd and rather troubling dinner party. And, um, and it's, it's actually got so much in it, and I've tried to break it down as best I can. And I wonder, uh, have you ever um, been invited to a dinner party po- uh, um, hosted by your boss? Uh, and there in the room was someone that you knew uh, actually hated you. Um, and who was actually quietly and determinedly aimed at destroying your reputation. And here's the twist, actually wanting you dead. Because that's the type of dinner party we're talking about here in John chapter 13. What would you do if you were at such a dinner party, I wonder? Uh, have you attended or perhaps even hosted such a dinner party? Now, I have been in some really hairy dinner parties, I have to say, over the years, especially in the British Army. Um, would you confront that particular person? Uh, would you run and hide? Uh, would you pretend that they were not there? Uh, would you make an excuse saying, you know what, I've just received a text message and sadly I've got, I've got to go and just depart and leave? What would you do? Do you agree with me that there is no treachery is worse than a betrayal of a family member, a friend, or a colleague. And perhaps some of you have uh, experienced this type, this level of angst and attack from a family member, a friend, or a work colleague, because that's what we're dealing with here in John's Gospel, chapter 13. Now, interestingly enough, uh, from ancient history, Julius Caesar uh, knew such treachery. Among the conspirators who assassinated the Roman leader, on March the 15th, uh, 44 before Christ, uh, was Marcus Brutus. Some of you may be aware of this. Caesar, so he's a Roman emperor, right? Not only trusted Brutus, so you can imagine it, a Roman emperor uh, in command of a huge empire, of uh, all the political machinations, and he trusted Brutus. Trusted him. Perhaps he couldn't trust many, but he trusted Brutus. And he tra- f- favoured him almost like a son. Now, according to Roman historians, Caesar well, at first resisted the onslaught of the assassination, assassins. They came to assassinate him. But when he saw Brutus among them with a dagger drawn, he ceased to struggle and he pulled the, uh, his gown over his head. And he uh, uttered those immortal words, you too, Brutus. Couldn't believe it. Sadly, in the instance we have today, today in John's Gospel, chapter 13, Jesus showing great intimacy and great tenderness through a dinner party, there was a betrayal and actually a double cross going on. Imagine it being there. You see, Jesus faced the betrayal of one who was close to him. And did you notice that scripture first says that Satan prompted Judas, that is, worked in the heart of Judas, to betray Christ. So there's a spiritual dynamic going on here. Now, Judas is mentioned eight times in the book of John, and I also notice that the word Satan put into the heart, or entered into Judas, the moment he took the piece of bread given to him by Jesus. So there's a spiritual transaction. The moment he received that piece of bread from Christ, there's a spiritual transaction, and Satan entered into his heart. And I can only imagine, you know, there was a spiritual process going on here when Satan first tempted Judas, and then uh, when he gave into temptation, the demonic presence... Moved from oppressing him into possessing his personality. There's a spiritual process there, leading Judas to conspire to murder. It's worth all thinking about that. Well, this whole chapter, John 13, is absolutely fascinating because it really is our Lord's farewell message to his disciples. But Jesus also added a very significant action to his message when he washed the disciples' feet so there's some teaching going on, but there's a very powerful action. It was, I suspect, a lesson or indeed a dinner party they would never forget. Imagine if you had such a dinner party. I guess you would never forget it either. In this passage, we see our Lord in a fourfold relationship in the first five verses of John 13 to his father. The second relationship is actually to Simon Peter, and then the third relationship is to his disciples. And then finally to Judas. And I want to cover each of those today. In each of these, we discover a special message, a spiritual truth to help us in the Christian life. All right, so firstly, humility, which concerns Jesus' relationship with the Father. And this is worthwhile pondering. Now, historically, we note that Jesus entered Jerusalem on a Sunday. On Monday, he cleansed the temple. On Tuesday was a day of conflict as all the religious leaders sought to trip him up and to get evidence to arrest him. Wednesday, we think, probably was a day of rest. And then on the Thursday, in the, they met in the upper room with his disciples to observe the Passover. And we notice that Jesus knew that his hour had come. What would you do, may I ask, if you knew that your time was up, that you had one week to live? And I received uh, news this morning at 8 o'clock that someone very dear to me probably is in that situation right now. Jesus knew that his hour had come. So we ask, what was this divinely appointed hour? And it sends a shudder through my spine to know that it was the time when Jesus would be glorified through the, his violent and murderous and publicly tortured death. And I know people who've been tortured. Through his astonishing resurrection and through his mysterious and triumphant ascension. You see, from a human point of view, it firstly meant his hideous suffering, but from a divine point of view, it meant glory. Jesus knew that he would soon leave this world and return to the Father, who sent him, having finished his work on earth. So let me say, when a servant of God is in the will of God, he or she finds they will have to embrace the world as they find it, not as what they want until their work is done you may not like the world you are in but you have to embrace it you may want something else Jesus had no choice Jesus knew that Judas would betray him and he lived with that but he was deeply troubled by it he also knew that his disciples would abandon him and he knew that some of them would deny him and no doubt that if he had witnessed the public crucifixion of others, which evidently was not uncommon in Jerusalem at the time, his stomach must have turned. Imagine it, just walking around Jerusalem one day and seeing people publicly crucified and knowing that is what's going to happen to you shortly. That he would be tortured and humiliated and despised. But Jesus courage- courageously walked the path of the will of the Father, that was humility, I believe. What do you think? He was poor, and yet he was rich in humility. By that I mean obeying the will of the Father. But there was more. The disciples must have been really shocked when they saw Jesus rise from dinner at this dinner party and lay aside his outer garments and with a towel around his waist take a basin of water and then commence washing their feet. Rabbis, you see, did not wash the feet of their disciples. It was a menial task and probably an unpleasant task, yet Jesus did it. That was humility. Do you think too often we confuse true humility with timidity and inferiority? What do you think? How would you think most people today would consider a humble person? Is it a timid person or someone who feels inferior and... Uh, and takes a status in the world like that. Now, Jesus was quick to say the Father had put all things into his hands. That's a bold statement. Yet he picked up a towel and a basin. His humility was not born of poverty or timidity or inferiority, but of riches. He was rich as the image of the invisible God... He was rich in obeying the Father's will, yet he became poor and humble in serving the disciples. A Malay proverb says this, The fuller the ear of rice grain, the lower it bends. You can imagine rice growing in a field. The fuller the head of the rice grain, the lower it bends. Jesus was the sovereign, yet he took the place of a servant. He had all things in his hands, yet he picked up a towel he was Lord and Master, yet he served his followers. And it's been well said that humility is not thinking meanly of yourself. It is simply not thinking of yourself at all. And it's interesting, isn't it, in terms of mission and outreach? We're not thinking of ourselves, we're thinking of others. Do you agree with me that true humility should grow out of our relationship with the Father as it did with Jesus? We today, just like the disciples of that night, desperately need this lesson on humility. Serving God no matter what the cost. That's what it means to be humble. I sometimes think the church can be filled with a worldly spirit of competition and criticism of human-centered thinking. Or we seek to do our will and not the will of the Father. At this dinner party, Jesus demonstrated a different approach and did things differently and he showed them and us what true humility is so just think about that the humility of Christ secondly Jesus talked with Peter about holiness and here we notice that uh, Peter watched the Lord wash his friends feet now you can just imagine it and Jesus is going around washing the uh, feet of others and Peter's just watching this thinking, what on earth is going on here uh, and he probably didn't understand. You know, I'm with Peter on this. I I would have not understood what was going on either. The word translated "wash" uh, and is what we call "nepto" in, in the Greek. It means to wash part of the body. So it's really just washing a small part of the body. Um, but the word translated "washed" in uh, uh, verse 10 of uh, of. John's Gospel 13, is luo, which means to bathe all over. So there's two concepts here about wash we need to get a, a, an understanding of. Now, we need to think carefully here because there is a fine distinction actually to be made. The distinction is important, for Jesus was trying to teach the disciples the, the importance of a holy walk. You see, when a person trusts Christ as Saviour, he or she is bathed all over. That is, they're washed all over. That's the luo. And their sins are washed away. Isn't that wonderful? And they are forgiven. That's luo. And their sins and, and iniquities will I remember no more. That is Hebrews 10 verse 17. However, as a believer walks in this world, it is easy to become defiled. Do you not agree? Yeah. You know, sometimes you can walk and you can walk on unpleasant things. Yeah, you see. Um, and spiritually, we also can be defiled. But we don't need to be bathed all over again, but simply to have that defilement washed away off our feet. So scripture says that God promises to cleanse us when we confess our sins to him. That is nipta, that is the partial cleansing, when we are defiled. Can you see there is then a difference between the luo, which is being washed over and completely forgiven the first time round, and then uh, washed over or just having a small part of your body cleaned because of defilement. Okay, Tony, I get that, but you might ask, why is it so important that we keep our feet clean to toe to wash part of our body? Why is that so important, uh, which is really what Peter was trying to ask here. Because quite simply, if we failed, we can't have communion with the Lord. If we, don't, if we walk in a defiled life, we cannot have communion with the Lord. Even though we may have been washed over completely and have been saved and we know we've been born again and that we love the Lord and the Lord loves us, but if there's defilement in our life, it actually breaks our communion with God. So what does that mean? The word translated part or uh, carries with it the, uh, the meaning here of participation, having a share in or uh, with someone or something in common. So when God bathes us all over, that's luo, what we call salvation, God brings about our union with Christ, and that has settled a relationship once and for all. However, our communion with Christ depends on our keeping ourselves unspoiled from the world undefiled. Look, it's a wee bit like being married. I married my wife Catherine in 1981 and that was a done deal and marriage rocks, no question asked. Uh, but I have discovered that it is possible. There are occasions, one has to say, that our sweet communion uh, can be strained or become a bit tardy uh, if, if I neglect my domestic duties, any wives out there understand what I'm talking about at this stage? Uh, or for some instance, or cross some type of line uh, in some particular way. Yes, married, yes, absolutely. No questions asked. But does that mean always happy, having fun together? Well, I need to constantly actually work on that. And that really is what Peter is saying here, or Jesus is saying to Peter. Listen, Peter, you have to be clean. You have to have clean feet. Live a faithful and holy life every day, always. And if you don't, then come to me in humility, and I will cleanse you from sin. I will metaphorically wash your feet. Do you get that, Peter? Do you really get that? That's what I'm talking about here. What Jesus is saying, if we continue with our unconfessed sin in our lives, we hinder our walk with the Lord, and metaphorically, that is when we need to have our feet washed, the nipto in the Greek. So I'm sure we all agree it is a wonderful thing to be to deepen our relationship with the Lord. And the important things always is to be honest with Christ and with ourselves and to keep our feet clean. So first, humility. Secondly, holiness. And now, thirdly, happiness. And this is um, quite complex, the word... Happiness, actually, is probably better translated as blessed. And this is where Jesus tells the disciples how to be happy. That is, how to be blessed. Now, the key verse here is John 13, verse 17. Can someone read that out for me, please? John 13, verse 17. Okay, there you go. Uh, in my translation I'm working off fear, which I don't think is as helpful as the one you've got, is if you know these things, happy are those if you do them. I actually think you can be blessed and be unhappy. Uh, um, I think that's, I don't know how happy Jesus was in his last week, but he's certainly blessed. But anyhow, we'll just go with the happiness at the moment. Okay, let me tell you something personal. I am into serious happiness. Uh, I want to luxuriate in the blessings of God. Uh, would that work for you also? Yeah, okay. But the sequence here is important humility, okay, holiness, and then happiness. You may know that Aristotle defined happiness as good fortune joined to virtue. Good fortune joined to virtue, then you'd be happy. Um, what do you think of that? Good fortune joined with virtue, good living, then you'd be happy. I think it sounds a wee bit like that you've won the lottery. And we were kind to Granny and the cat, uh, then you will be happy. Actually, I think that sounds pretty plausible. I don't know what you think. I think it sounds pretty plausible. Uh, well, okay, that might be due for a philosopher, but it will never do for a Christian believer because, according to what Jesus is saying to us today from John chapter 13, happiness, Jesus implies, is the byproduct of a life that is lived in the will of God. When we obey the will of God by humbly serving others, secondly, by walking in God's paths of holiness, then we will enjoy happiness, we will enjoy blessing. That's Jesus' description of what it means to be happy or to be blessed. So Jesus asked the disciples if they understood what he had done, and I suspect it was a bit, uh, it was likely that they didn't, I mean, are you understanding what I'm saying here? I mean, it's actually quite complex, isn't it? So at a dinner party when neither one is relaxed, do you think that the disciples are really locked into this? So he explained it differently. He took the, I gave them a lesson in humble service, an example for them to follow. Now, do you agree that many people today see this differently, that they have actually this upside down? Because they seem to think that happiness is the result of others serving them. Yeah? You know, I will be happy when this task or that task which I am responsible for can be done by someone else. You know, I really wish someone would clean the windows in their house at home because that's my job. And I would be real happy about that. Uh, I'd be real happy if someone else paid the bills. Um, that would work for me. Uh, I would be real happy if people did all the chores. And I am retired, as you know, and Catherine's not, so I get a list. Well, at least several lists. And I would be real happy if my name wasn't at the top of that list. Um, but I think we are learning from this passage real happiness comes when we serve others in the name of Christ. It does appear to me the world is constantly pursuing happiness, but at times this feels like chasing a shadow because happiness often seems to be beyond our reach. Jesus was their master. So he had every right to command their service. Instead, he served them. And thereby gave the disciples an example of true Christian living and ministry. Now, this is important in terms of the, your, your mission week, serving other people. The world may ask, how many people work for you? I mean, I've, I've been a manager of people. You know, You get managers together and eventually that question pops up, doesn't it? Uh, but the Lord asks, for how many people do you work for? Jesus has turned it on his head. I served 16 years in the British Army as a chaplain, and I was privileged to attend the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst, and noted with interest the seminal book on leadership was called a Serve to Lead. Serve to Lead, it's a great book. Leadership was simply defined in terms of service, and at times sacrificial service as an officer, you were required, if need be, to be the first one to lay down your life. How true it is that we need leaders who will serve and servants who will lead. G.K. Chesterton said that a really great person is one who makes others feel great, and that's a characteristic of notice from your pastor here. You make people feel great. He makes people feel great, and that's a real mark of leadership. And Jesus did this with his disciples by teaching them to serve. And here is a mystery. Actually, it is a beautiful mystery. We serve, as we serve, we are happy. As we serve, we are happy. The world thinks it the other way around. If people serve us, we'll be happy, right? Now, I have to say, studying this section in John's Gospel can stir us emotionally or enlighten us intellectually, but it cannot actually bless us spiritually until we begin to do what Jesus told us to do. This is the only way to lasting happiness. So let's keep these lessons in their proper sequence. Humility, holiness, and then happiness. That's the sequence. In other words, after the example of Jesus, submit to the Father, keep your life clean, don't be defiled, and then serve others. Now, I think this is God's formula for true spiritual happiness and joy, and it's quite different, I think, from what the world is saying. Now, fourthly and finally, we learn about hypocrisy. And I wish I could put a, a say amen at the end of this uh, last point and just call the sermon quits because this next bit on Judas is 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 not very pleasing. I have to say, but let's see where we go with it. We learn about hypocrisy where Jesus calls out Judas. I've been in a situation where someone has been called out by a brigadier. He said, "Oh, padre, could you just join me with this meeting?" "Oh, sure." And I joined in with this meeting with him and two other people, and these people were called out before the brigadier in Germany. And if they could have hidden in the carpet, they would have done. And I think this is what Jesus did with Judas here. So as you heard the scripture read this morning, did you sense a dark shadow fall across the dinner party as Jesus dealt with Judas the traitor? I think it was a shadow which came across the dinner party at that time. And it's important to note that Judas was not a true believer. He was, actually was a hypocrite from the beginning. In John's Gospel 6.64, uh, take a note of that, chapter 6.64, it says, Yet there are some of you, Jesus said, who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. So Jesus knew all along. He hadn't made an error of judgment of appointing Judas. He knew all along that Judas did not believe. He was not part of a team. The question is, why did Jesus choose him? That's it. For another day. Um, Stu can answer that one. Uh, <laughs> Judas had not been bathed all over, according to uh, uh, John's Gospel here. That's Luo again. So he hadn't been bathed all over. And he had not been among the chosen ones whom the Father had given the Son. So we need to note how close a person can come to salvation and yet be lost forever. Judas was even the treasure of the group, and was certainly held in high regard, if not warm regard, by his fellow disciples. I mean, if you didn't hold someone in high regard or warm regard, uh, you wouldn't allow them to look after the, the money of the church. Who's the treasurer here? <laughs> A high regard and warm regard? Probably. Yes, absolutely. It's saved. It's saved. <laughs> and, and saved. And saved. Hallelujah. That is why he related it to the prophet. But Jesus is worried that the disciples, actually, once they really understood what was going with Judas, they'd get upset. But Jesus then related it to the prophecy and say, "Look, I knew all of this along. I have not made any uh, error of judgment here. Judas had been uh, disloyal, but Jesus expected them to be loyal to him and to his cause." They were Christ's chosen representatives, and extraordinary to receive them would be the same as receiving the Father and the Son. That's amazing, isn't it? To receive the disciples is the same as receiving the Father and the Son. What a privilege it is to be ambassadors for God. The remarkable thing is that the others at the table did not know that Judas was an unbeliever and a traitor. They didn't know. But apparently from the very beginning, Jesus knew what Judas would do, but he did not compel him to do it. Here's the thing. So Judas was exposed to the same spiritual privileges as the other disciples, yet it did him no good. It is well said, the same sun that melts the ice can harden the clay. And despite all that our Lord said about money and all that his warnings about greed, Judas continued to be a thief and to steal from the treasury from the disciples' purse. Despite all our Lord's warning, that unbelief, Judas persisted in his rejection. Jesus even washed Judas' feet Yet his hard heart did not yield. Imagine it being washed, having your feet washed by Jesus. But Judas's hard heart was not softened by that. And when Jesus spoke previously about a traitor, in John chapter 6, verse 70, the disciples didn't take it to heart. Now, however, when he spoke openly about it at this dinner party at the table, the disciples were understandably perplexed. Imagine it. Keep in mind that Judas knew what he was doing and that he did it deliberately. You see, he had already met with the Jewish religious leaders and agreed to lead them to Jesus. He heard Jesus, say, he heard Jesus say this, The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Imagine if you were lining yourself up to do that. And you heard Jesus say that about you. What would you be thinking? And yet he didn't change. Unbelievable. Jesus, uh, Judas persisted in his unbelief and treachery. So I feel that John's little phrase, and it was night, carries a tremendous impact when you remember that the light and darkness are important spiritual images in the Gospel of John. One of the great themes of John's Gospel, light and darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. But Judas rejected Jesus, went out into the darkness, and for Judas it is still night. Well, what an interesting dinner party, don't you think? I don't think I have attended anything quite like that before. Have you? Okay, in this passage, I want to summarise now, we see our Lord in a fourfold relationship. Firstly, to his Father, characterised by humility, following the path of obedience humbly, even though it's going to be extremely painful, beyond description. Secondly, to Simon Peter, where he talked about holiness, and don't be defiled, have your feet washed, in order to have communion with me. And then to all the disciples about happiness or blessing, and then finally to Judas, tragically, about hypocrisy, betrayal, and treachery. In each of these, we discover a special message, a spiritual truth to help us in our Christian life. Amen. Do you want me to pray? Is that what the deal was? Let us pray. We've just reflected upon uh, your dinner with the disciples in your last week. What an extraordinary meal that was, and what were all the thoughts and feelings going through your heart and mind as you looked out upon the disciples and especially upon Judas and pondering what the next day will bring for you. And we thank you, Lord, for your humility in following courageously the will of the Father. We thank you, Lord, that you set up for all time what it really means to serve humbly, and also Lord, to live a life which is holy, undefiled, so important, that you're there to wash our feet, to forgive us when we get it wrong. Thank you for that. And then Lord, that cautionary note about how people can be so close and yet be so far through the tragic life of Judas. And you knew that and you lived with it. And I wonder Lord, why you included that as part of your original team, what the lessons are for us today. So bless our thinking today, Lord, and our pondering, and guide us in your perfect
0: way, through Christ our Lord. Amen.